Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining me this week from our uh, table, not terribly large and round, but still a round table of regulars. <laughs> we that, that That's our station manager, Peter Jake, chirping up in the back. So we'll get him out of the way. But we do have Dr. Michael Walker, Anthony Jones. Oh, my goodness. Are we getting formal? This I'm, 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 that, you want the initials? You got them, baby. <laughs> Dr. Michael Walker, Anthony Jones, of course, is a higher education consultant, and he's joining us today all the way from Canton, Ohio, where he'll be slicing and dicing his way across an 18-hole golf course. We also have uh, from our from Beacon Hill, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeffrey Roy, and as hey. I mentioned, Peter J, station manager. <clears throat> Once again, all right. we're all together in madcap hijinks. You betcha, baby. <laughs> Now, today, we're going to be discussing kind of a potpourri, a panoply, as Peter uh, mentioned just a second ago, of topics. We're going to start with the Supreme Court, and we'll get into the 4th of July, and there may be diversions along the way. But let's start with the Supreme Court. Right now, they're currently in session, and they're generating a fair amount of discussion regarding their decisions. But the majority of newsprint, at least early on, had been devoted to reports questioning the ethical nature of decisions made by Associate Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Now, both uh, had accepted generous gifts of goods and services from wealthy Republican Party donors. The most recent of these being Alito's acceptance of a seat on a private jet owned by billionaire Paul Singer, flying him to a luxury fishing trip in Alaska and then failing to declare these gifts or recuse himself when Singer had business before the court. Disclosure of these vets come on the heels of reports of gifts and loans made to Thomas. Also come on the heels of reports of gifts and loans made to Thomas by billionaire Harlan Crow. Meanwhile, the decisions on several cases have come down, most recently on Moore v. Harper, where the court ruled against the independent state legislature theory, finding that some state courts do have the authority to question state legislatures on election laws for federal contests. More to come on both fronts on these. Now, we'll also be celebrating the nation's 247th anniversary of our Declaration of Independence from England. And that'll be on the 4th, of course, Tuesday the 4th. Joyous celebrations and gatherings will be the general rule of the day, exactly as they should be and exactly as they were just a few days ago, not too long ago, on Juneteenth, June 19th. Mm -hmm. So we've got um, two national holidays, two national independence days. Is there a, a, something down the road where they might merge or should they be kept separate? Anyway, I'm going to open it up. 
to this uh, this little group we've got here today, and I'd welcome anything you've got to offer. Take it away, gentlemen. Well, first off, let's make sure that they stay separate. Uh, <laughs> okay. I got to uh, agree with that. One is the declaration that we are no longer subjects of the king or the empire of Great Britain, England. The other is an acknowledgement, uh, Juneteenth, an acknowledgement that the great atrocity of this country, that is slavery, was brought to at least an end, giving an opportunity for those people who were newly freed an opportunity to continue to struggle to keep their freedom. All right. That being said, let's take a look at the Supreme Court. And uh, my friends here, let me tell you, I have been surprised on one side and still cringing on the other. The, uh, uh, the Harper case is one that I was absolutely positively hoping for the best embracing for the worst. Uh, that case, for those of us who, uh, for those of you who were listening, that case would have given unfettered, unrestricted, unexplored territory to every state legislature in this country in that it would have said that any decision they make around elections, especially federal elections, is without question infallible. That is, courts can't review it, that the legislature at the end of the day has the authority to do anything they want. And if they decide that they're going to jury rig or let's say at the uh, the districts or at the last moment, they change polling places or let's say that they're going to place restrictions on the length of time that people can go to the polls, that those legislatures could do that. And it would have been a destructive death blow to our democracy. Mm. Thank goodness. Now, here's the real kicker. Thank goodness six of the judges out of the nine mm. at least all agreed, one in part, that that is not only unconstitutional, but it also breaks what we in this country refer to as oversight or checks and balances. So I was very pleased to see that I'm still concerned about the two of the judges that you mentioned, Nick, one, Justice Alito, and I'm always worried about my my poor brother, Clarence Thomas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I am triply worried about their ethical stance as judges, but we'll get into that in a bit. So mm. let's start from there. The Harper case. Uh, I'm elated in part, uh, but still cautious in part. I think mainly because they said there were, it just wasn't the way to go. They said there were steps where they could kind of move into things, but they didn't define it. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. There was no definition. They were saying, okay, it's still an open road out <laughs> there. Give us something we can work with, and maybe you can move into this uh, somewhat questionable area. Yeah. In legal parlance, what they tried to do was to say, well, there's an issue here, but the issue is moot because the case that they were hearing had been reversed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the Supreme Court in North Carolina, and therefore there's nothing for us to decide here. And most of the jurisprudence folks said, nope, that's not the case. We need a decision. Is this a viable piece? And six of the justices said, no, 
No, yeah. let's just let's just go ahead and put a stake into this thing, bury it, and let's hope it stays buried. I think it's that hope that they put out there, kind of, you know, who's who's hoping which way it's going to go. Is this theory going to resurface in in another guise that will still allow state legislatures to exercise somewhat dubious control over the elections held in their states? Well, I hope that the that the talking heads around the country are correct that this thing is done how however keep in mind they did give a little bit of a platform or framework in mm-hmm. another case mm-hmm. that says we're going to be somewhat really cautious and put these kinds of voting rights under a microscope another decision that just threw me for a loop which was the Alabama case where the Supreme Court said, you know, folks, you have an opportunity to add another minority uh, representative from your state. You didn't do it. You gerrymandered the districts, Mm -hmm. and that was wrong. And the Supreme Court said it was racially motivated, and they reversed that decision uh, on the part of the lower court to allow Alabama to gerrymander its congressional districts and eliminate a potential district serving a minority population. Again, that was, uh, you know, I was really surprised at that one and and would appreciate, you know, you guys, your thoughts on it, because I happen to have been in Alabama. I'm still working in Alabama as one of my clients. But I was very surprised because it caught the people in Alabama by surprise. They thought, uh, you know, they were pounding their chest saying, ah, see, we got away with that. You know, we can basically do anything we want to try to jerry rig these districts and uh, make them all hyper right wing. Uh, but the Supreme Court said, no, can't do that. Your I think, thoughts. <clears throat> I think one of the things about that particular ruling is the outcome and process is egregious and and the difference between the distribution of the population and the way that the districts are laid out the difference is patent it's obvious and that when you see that kind of obvious nature where clearly mathematically this should not stand i think that provides sufficient evidence to you know find your way to the court and here's a case where the supreme court is actually exercising its power reasonably over the issue of of you know states rights states rights do have some boundaries and and i think this is probably a classic example of of how it's supposed to work i mean that's my view so i think that you know states may do with what they will but at the end of, you know at the end of the day trying to restrict votes or trying to manipulate the way people can vote to produce some kind of an advantage is is going to hopefully in the fullness of time have its limits uh, where the Supreme Court serves as the watchdog you know we'll see over time but at least this ruling was was encouraging it was that all right we've got other decisions that are coming up as we mentioned um there's one in particular well, there's one that impacts the, our good friend from uh, Beacon Hill mm. that uh, I hope uh, he's and his colleagues are able to correct. And Jeff, you may want to mention your uh, uh, the bill that 
you've got up for consideration and hopefully passage. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Michael. And uh, this is not a decision of the Supreme Court that is coming up, but it was a Supreme Court decision that was decided just a few weeks ago. Uh, it's known as the Tyler case involved a 94-year-old woman from uh, Minnesota who had an unpaid tax debt of $15,000. And uh, the uh, community took her home under the law that allows, if you're uh, unpaid taxes, uh, they can take you home and get a tax deed. And the town in Minnesota sold her home and not only took the $15,000 tax debt, but took all of the equity in the home from that woman, obviously left her homeless, but uh, you know, a great and unfair uh, and unconstitutional act. Uh, I filed a bill uh, in the last session, and I again uh, refiled it uh, this session. It's called an act relative to tax deeds and protecting equity for homeowners facing foreclosure. And it's to rectify this very problem that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court identified and found as uh, unconstitutional. Uh, the current law in Massachusetts and about 16 other states is that towns and communities can take title to a taxpayer's property uh, and they get a disproportionate financial windfall by not only taking the property, but being able to keep the equity at the end of the day. Uh, let me share with you an analogy. So you have a mortgage uh, with your local bank and uh, you have a home that's worth $500,000. You have a, a mortgage of $100,000. You fail to make the payments on your mortgage. The uh, mortgage uh, holder can foreclose on your property, sell your property by auction, and collect back the $100,000 that you owed plus any expenses incurred. But at the end of the day, they have to turn over that equity to you as the homeowner. That's not the process that's used in these uh, tax takings. And uh, that's why I filed this bill to change the process in Massachusetts, make it more fair. Yes, people should pay their taxes and communities should be able to collect their taxes, but they should not be able to collect a financial windfall. And as Justice Roberts stated in the rarely uh, rare unanimous decision, 9-0 of the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts stated emphatically that a taxpayer must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more. And uh, we couldn't agree more. And uh, we're seeking to uh, get that law changed in Massachusetts, get more due process protection for uh, homeowners. And uh, the typical homeowner in this situation uh, tends to be poor, tends to be uh, not as educated as uh, or sophisticated as uh, would be necessary to understand the legal proceedings that are taking place. And we're trying to keep people in their homes. And, uh, you know, rarely am I excited by a U.S. Supreme Court decision these days, but I was truly excited uh, by that one. And I think it's going to help us uh, get our bill here in Massachusetts over the goal line. And uh, we had a hearing on it uh, last week for the Revenue Committee and uh, looking forward to a favorable report. For those who are uh, looking for more information on the bill, it's uh, House number 2937. And again, it's called an act relative to tax deeds and protecting equity for homeowners facing foreclosure. I would hope, Jeff, that 
part of your bill is to give those folks in the example you just used an opportunity to go back and recoup that money. Since this is a new piece of legislation, it would become a new piece of law to look backwards and say how many people have been harmed. And let's give those people at least a window of opportunity to uh, sort of rectify those wrongs. You know, the the interesting thing is that when it comes to property uh, and the Supreme Court, while I was in law school, I recall something that came as a total surprise to me that our our whole scheme of property and ownership of property, especially real property, goes back to English law, where everything belongs to the sovereign. Okay. And you actually only get a leasehold on it. <laughs> okay. You really don't own it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And most of us think, oh yeah, well, I got I got this little piece of land or I got this house. Well, it's only at the uh at the largest of uh, of the sovereign, in this case, the government, because <clears throat> I think uh, in our uh, in our pre-work, I asked you, Jeff, about the implications for eminent domain, your, your 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 bill. And I think you said that there's no that there's no implication here for eminent domain, which I think is also one of the more egregious pieces of law and has traditionally been decided not in favor of the homeowner or the property owner, but in favor of the government. I know that, uh, and correct me, Jeff, and maybe you may want to espouse more on this, but I think that under federal and state law, that if the government seizes your property under eminent domain, that they then have to give you a reasonable price. But the question I've always has is, okay, since real estate is always a matter of the eye of the beholder, who sets the reasonable price? Yeah, I would say, you know, in those contexts, um, uh, cities and towns uh, have the property appraised and uh, they offer make an offer based on that particular appraisal. If you as the homeowner who are subject to that eminent domain are not happy with the price or believe that it's been uh, undervalued, uh, you have every right to get your own appraisal, try to negotiate a better deal with the city of town. But more importantly, if you are not happy, uh, you can file a lawsuit and uh, take that issue to court, get a trial and have a jury determine uh, what the reasonable value of that property is. Um, I think the issue of eminent domain really came to light probably on the order of 15 to 20 years ago uh, when the uh, New London, Connecticut. Yeah, the mm. Connecticut case. Uh, yeah, right. the Kelo case, K-E-L-O, when mm-hmm. they uh, attempted for the first time in history to take uh, land through the eminent domain process to benefit a private entity. Usually a land taking is, uh, you know, a town wants to build a school or a fire station or some municipal building, and it's for a public good. But mm. in that Kelo case, it was a taking for private gain. So that really uh, brought attention to that issue. Um, you know, a great book, The Little Pink House, uh, was uh, written about that particular case. And uh, there was actually a movie called The Little Pink House as well. And uh, that Little Pink House uh, happens to be a museum today uh, down in New London um, because the the woman, uh, Mrs. Kilo, fought it so uh, hard, uh, ended up uh, prevailing, but uh, in the process uh, lost her home, uh, as did all her neighbors. 
And uh, the private developer decided that it was not going to move forward with the project. So all of that land that they took for this private benefit now stands vacant. If you go down to New London and you go to that area, it's barren wasteland. So, you know, I, I'm not a fan of uh, the abuse of eminent domain. I'm a big fan of uh, protecting property rights and uh, this particular bill on preserving home equity for homeowners is a real part of that uh, of that piece. And uh, going back to your uh, making the bill retroactive uh, piece, mm. currently, even without a change in law, given that the United States Supreme Court has indicated that the practice of taking equity is unconstitutional, people have a right at this very moment to go in and attack those takings and attempt to get their um, money back or get compensated for those losses, even without the statute. So, um, you know, I fully expect that we will see a challenge uh, along those lines for people seeking to recoup their money. I will also indicate that at the hearing that was at the State House uh, last week, the Attorney General's office came in testified in favor of the bill uh, that I filed and said, uh, we fully support this change in the law. And in fact, in all the cases that are pending uh, before the courts on this very issue, we are stating publicly that we are not going to defend the current law or the current practice. So it was a very bold statement by the Attorney General of Massachusetts, uh, which really gives me an indication that we are going to see some major mm. changes in this particular area. Excellent. Well, I wonder what our good friend, who's always concerned about property values and and the and the little guy, I wonder what Frank Falvey would think about this. Well, we've got Frank here. Whoa! He might be able to, might be able to <laughs> elucidate on that. Frank, good morning. How are you? Thank good. you for joining good us. Good morning. Today. Thank you. But before elucidating on that, uh, uh -oh. Jeff. You had uh, several years ago come across on uh, New Year's Day reading in the paper about uh, a homeowner who hadn't paid their taxes and someone else came in, bought the property. And and I know you, you had filed a bill at that time to correct that wrong. Uh, how was how that proceeding? It's actually proceeding very well. And uh, that was uh, the bill that I was referring to in my comments a few moments ago, that the attorney general's office is coming in supporting it. Uh, the Supreme Court decision that ruled that a similar statute in Minnesota is unconstitutional came down two weeks ago. And a lot of attention has been focused on my bill as a result of that. We had a very favorable hearing last week at the Revenue Committee. And I'm feeling good that we're going to get uh, that issue resolved here in Massachusetts. And hopefully my bill will become law very soon. And I got two other quick questions. In the revenue side of uh, revenue, the new revenue law, have they increased the deductibility for clothing from $175 to something more reasonable? Well, the quick answer is I don't know. Um, the uh, I, I don't recall what we exactly put in the bill. It gets a little confusing uh, once the House does a version and then the Senate does the version and now it's in a conference committee. I won't see what emerges uh, from that bill uh, for a few weeks. As soon as it comes out, 
I will let you know. And because uh, I have to do a thorough study of it before I vote on it. Anyways, mm -hmm. I'll keep you yeah, posted. I, I do think the other thing that crossed my mind was uh, in declaring on the Massachusetts income, you only have a $200 deductible or not deductible, but is non-taxable if you have money in a Massachusetts bank. Again, I, I think that ought to be raised, I don't know, $700, $800. The $200 thing has been there for years. And I think to encourage investment in Massachusetts and particularly in Massachusetts banks, uh, we need a higher uh, a higher level of exclusion for income that you receive from those banks. I'll just, when you're talking about real estate, yes, uh, I believe there is a unique situation in Franklin and other towns that seniors like me that are over 65 and own their home for 20 or 30 years uh, that I expressed that people can go to on the third Thursday at the senior center and meet with local town officials. Uh, that there is a unique age discrimination and discrimination, particularly when they when either they die and their children are going to sell their estate or they try to sell their home. But I I don't want to disturb the, the your other issues that you I know are probably uh, much more significant. No, that's then no, that's fine. Uh, I, you feel that seniors in franklin in massachusetts the united states are you feel we because i am a senior are particularly discriminated against in property taxes in this town in massachusetts in massachusetts okay the, the way the massachusetts mm -hmm. law applies okay is they exclude any sale that they consider a sale of convenience and any sale below the assessed value is basically always considered a sale of convenience. Okay. Yeah. And I contend, and and I've shown over several over several years that particularly people that are my age that have owned the home for twenty or thirty years have not up kept it up uh, to uh, a modern standard. Uh, I don't have a porch. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot that that is lacking in my home. That newer homes. Uh, that have been refinished, like the house next door, which was exactly like my house, are are not considered part of the assessment process and are not fairly comp uh, considered that they can't be sold for the price that you're being assessed. And particularly in 2023, what happened, is, what happened to seniors is the price of homes in Franklin have gone up so much and so high, right? that the price of the middle class, the price of the average home, has tremendously risen, okay, only because of the inflation of other homes. And so the tax rate actually has gone down from $14 down to 12 So people that own very expensive homes, their tax rate probably went down. And it is the, the older people that have stayed in their home, haven't fixed it up, that that I believe are significantly in this 2023 have been uh, one impacted tremendously. I mean, $70,000 higher assessment, $100,000 higher assessment uh, on your home in one year is not unusual uh, in 2023. And uh, I, I certainly think uh, that 
that both the law and the regulation, and as the town of Franklin interprets that, is is not fair to older citizens. Yeah, I happen to agree with Frank that there is a sort of a disproportionate look and rate that's applied uh, to seniors, even though there's the circuit breaker and a number of other things that are that are out there that are always pointed to saying that we give our seniors a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Frank's point is well taken in 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 a market where housing prices are rising. And again, Frank is correct that if I had a modest home, let's say in 1990 that I bought, raised my family, and here it is 2023, you know, some 30 something years later, and there are now, let's say 1.2, $1.3 million homes. The average price has risen simply because there are more higher priced homes here. But then because of the desirability of the community, you know, a good education system, a a wonderful social and economic environment, all of the services that we have, my home has appreciated to the point where, in some instances, a person like Frank or myself, I could not afford to buy the house mm-hmm. that I'm currently living in now in Franklin. Now, that... On the surface, we all look and say, oh, well, isn't that the ideal situation, Michael? Isn't that really what you buy a house for? Well, yes and no. I still would like to have a reasonable priced house. Now, how does that relate to some of the legal issues that we're talking about? Because the environment that's set by the courts and by court cases have an impact then on my ability, as especially as a senior citizen, to do three things. One, be able to appropriately pay my taxes, which is Jeff's point that I may be able to, even though I may not have a mortgage on my house anymore because it's paid, can I keep up with the tax rate Mm -hmm. now that's been imposed? Two, when it looks at, when you look at sales, can I at a reasonable uh, piece here do something that a lot of families like to do, which is actually get this property to my children without them having to pay a tax or inflation or assessment penalty. And I think mm-hmm. that's what Frank is is saying, you know, that if I were to sell my children, my home for the price that I bought, that my wife and I bought it for, I'd be penalized for that because the town says, oh, no, you can't do that because the house is worth more and we want more money. And the state says the same thing. Or three, look at what is it that's going to happen with regard to inheritance and the transfer of what now has become for me a little nest egg that I did not realize that was going to grow to this extent because I'm living here. So all of these things, I think, combined together gets to Frank's point. And to say that our tax system is, you know, I think it would be somewhat remiss on our part if we said our tax system, number one, is understandable. It's not. And number two, for us to say that our tax system doesn't need, it needs more than tweaking. It actually needs a whole lot of revision 
because there are a lot of things that happen inside of our tax system that are unfair to those who are of middle class and below. Mm. No, I think I, I I have to agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Again, as a number, a, a, a member of this uh, this group that's ever growing seniors in this country. <laughs> And also with the confusion, hey, I'll, uh, I'll say hello when I get there. <laughs> yeah. I'll have you in the rearview mirror. That's fine. Yeah, I know. But uh, and when it comes comes to me is that, you know, it, it's so much of it is based upon future pr- uh, projections and the prognostications of economists. And the thing that I always think of, I can. I can only say that I agree with the belief that God created economists just to make astrologers look good. <laughs> this, is, this is well, you know, I, Will Rogers said that if you took all of the economists in the world and lined them up end to end, they wouldn't reach a conclusion. No, that's true. <laughs> but it kind of brings we can segue that back into a Supreme Court decision that is pending. Uh-huh. That being debt relief. Now, this is the other end of the coin. The other side, I'm sorry, the other side of the coin. And that (laughs) is we have these young people now coming out of college, coming out of graduate school, professional schools, wherever they're coming out of. They're coming out with debt that they may not be free of potentially for their lives. So we have a pending decision on Biden's Joe, President Biden's debt forgiveness loan program. And I think that's something that will, you know, that, well, it has to be decided the next day. And we're looking forward to that. And that's going to be a big, big stepping stone to either uh, a reevaluation of where we are in this country with regard to the cost of an education, higher education, and how we're going to look, the, you know, explain to the future generations that, yeah, you're going to live with debt for the rest of your life. Everyone lives with debt to a certain extent. Are you going to be able to live with crushing debt for the rest of your lives? I I think the case is going to be decided that uh, Biden is illegal. That, that illegal. The, illegal. And I think this ties into Michael Walker Jones and in the African-American community that wants to see, and Michael, I don't know how you feel about this subject, but wants to see reprobations wants to go back and and pay African-Americans money because they were enslaved. Now, if there was a specific house, a specific case, I have sympathy for that. But as a general blanket policy on, on, on education or debt relief, the education way it was set up was totally stupid. The United States should have said, we, the United States, will give you a non-interest loan from the government so you don't have to pay interest. And that would have been the more equitable and sensible way of helping to fund a higher education. But I do think, Michael, do you see this as tying into people that would like to see retrobations paid? The quick answer, Frank, is yes. I see this not only tied to the uh, uh, the concept of how are we going to atone for the 400, 500 years of, uh, of basically slavery imposed upon a number of our citizens in this country. 
but I also see this as a democracy issue as well on the larger scale. Now, let me explain those two. And it also ties into affirmative action. Let me just throw all three of those in uh, in terms of what the Supreme Court is dealing with. In this country, our philosophy around education is we keep espousing that it's important for everybody to get an education. We've made it so that the, the states are responsible, not the federal government. The states are responsible for providing access to public education for all of their citizens. The federal government takes very little responsibility. And again, uh, I, you know, for our listeners, you think that I'm being hyperbolic here. I am not. Fact check me on this. The federal government takes very little responsibility for public education at the preschool K-12 level. All of those responsibilities belong to the individual states. Mm -hmm. Then when we get to higher education, again, the federal government takes very little responsibility, but they have the mechanism and means to set the parameters for that because most of the loans are dealt with and Pell Grants and other kinds of uh, of mechanisms to help students afford higher education. Now, those things do come from the federal government. And Frank, you're absolutely correct. This has, should never have been a for-profit scheme, but it's one of the banes of our country in terms of if we are going to espouse higher education, we either ought to do one of two things, make it so that it is available and free every single one of our students, or we make it such that money to afford a higher education is interest-free for every single one of our students. So if you need to take out money in order to pay your higher ed tuition, you don't have to pay interest on that. You just pay back the principal. You know, we put money into that and have the system then replenish itself either through repayments or through donations, or through a tax structure that keeps replenishing that fund. All right. That being said, right now we have one of the most insidious systems in the entire world. Our students are burdened with debt from day one mm -hmm. to the point where under the Reagan administration, we now say it is the most insidious debt that you will ever have in your entire life. Mm -hmm. For example, if I had a car loan of $100,000 at, let's say, 2%, and I get to a point where I can't afford to pay that loan, two things can happen. I can either forfeit the car and have it uh, returned and then I still owe the debt and they'll come at me. And ultimately I could claim bankruptcy. I can't pay it anymore. Okay. And then the court discharges it and says, okay, here's the end of this. And let's say I've got a hundred thousand dollar debt that I owe to Tufts University and I get to a point at 2%, let's say 2%, even though most student loans are much higher than that. Okay. But I'm going to put it at the same level as the car loan. And let's say I get to a point where I can't afford it. I then say, okay, look, you know what? I'm going to go and see if I can get into bankruptcy. 
As soon as I get to the courthouse steps, here's what happens. The court says, I'm sorry, this debt, according to federal law, cannot be discharged through bankruptcy. So you better figure out a way to pay this up to and including the rest of your life, because the only thing that will discharge this debt will be your leaving this plane of reality. That, I think, is, again, one of the most insidious programs, okay, ever created in this country or, in my opinion, all right, in the world. There are other countries that don't even charge for higher education for Mm -hmm. their citizens. So if you want to know how I feel about this one, okay, this one I think is really tied to, again, and I'll throw in the affirmative action piece here now, because the court is about about to rule on this too. So we've got two cases pending that I think are absolutely designed to harm people of color and those who are needy. And I throw that in to make sure that this is not just a an issue of race. This is an issue of democracy, but deals with those people of color and people of need, poor people in this country. And the rest of the system is not giving any kind of credence at all to sort of reaching down and helping the least of us and all of us. Uh, So now let's talk about when it comes to reparations. Reparations is an acknowledgement that what is it that we owe those people who, for example, built the state of Georgia? You go to Atlanta, you look at all of those corporations that are there, or you come to a state like Alabama, you go to Birmingham and you look at all of the corporations are there. How many folks of who were slaves gave their lives so that those companies could have free labor? Now, let me name a few of them for you. U.S. Steel, Morgan Stanley, Chase Bank. These are companies that benefited from slavery. They are multi-billionaire billion international corporations today. Haven't paid one dime in terms of reparations to any of those people who back in from the 1600s on. And there are others. Uh, other companies haven't paid one dime to the support of those folks who gave their lives in many instances and their freedom in order to build those companies. Now, again, I want our listeners to fact check me on this if you don't believe it. One, uni- actually, two universities in this country Brown University, which happens to be here in our own neighborhood, and Harvard University which happens to be here in our neighborhood, are two institutions that have at least attempted to try to build some kind of reparation scheme because they were directly involved in the slave trade. So here's what happens now with our uh, with affirmative action. Harvard tried to use race as one of its balancing factors in order to diversify its population, but in also in order to sort of tip its hat to the fact that there is a debt that we owe to people of color in this country, not just African-Americans, Chinese, Japanese, Asian-Americans, Caribbeans, Irish-Americans, and others where the university says, we're going to take these factors into account. Brown University not only said we're going to take these factors in terms of race and ethnicity into account, but we're also going to put money into it. Well, so did Harvard. And they have 
specific scholarships at Brown University for students who come from either first generation impoverished or uh, lineage of slavery. So, Frank, yes, I believe that these two cases, the affirmative action case and the case dealing with the uh, exclusion or the discharging of debt by the Biden administration, not only are they needed, but I think it's just the tip of the iceberg of where the Supreme Court really ought to be coming down in support of what I think is a democratic principle, which is the access to all of our citizens to as much education as you can stand and therefore contributing as much as you possibly can through your cognitive and mental prowess into our economy and our social structure. And that's all I got to say about that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the aspect of companies that profit off the back of enslaved people. I think for myself, it's, it's a, it's a, a belief I've had for several years that I haven't voiced very often but I'll bring it up today, and and particularly in in, in, uh, in view of the fact that uh, Dr. Michael Walker Jones is sitting there wearing a Boston Red Sox jacket that has the Nike swoosh on it, and who makes a tremendous a tremendous amount of money off the backs of college educated, college trained athletes? Nike, Converse, Champion, this the the NFL, the AFL, the uh, MLB. M- MLB, yes, MLB. Love those acronyms. The NHL, well, the NHL will kind of put them to the side, but they have made billions off of these students. Now, most of those cats are coming out of there without onerous debt because they went on scholarships. Well, maybe these corporations should be required for every athlete that comes up and that they draft into the major leagues, they go back and they return some of that some of their largesse to the school that has produced to a great extent, not completely. These are talented, talented young men and women, physically, you know, gifted. Put some money back in for those who don't have that physical gift and some who are going to come out of that school with onerous debt, like you say, potentially lifelong these days. Let's get everyone adding into the the kitty that might work towards solving this. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the use and misuse of money that is the root of all evil. And if we can take money and solve some of these problems, money has been put to good use. You don't throw money at something, but you, with a purpose in mind and with a particular feeling of paying back, you can affect good change. How do we feel about that? You want to pay more for your jerseys? Do you want to pay more for the uh, sneakers that you wear? Because undoubtedly, Nike will raise the price. <laughs> well, well, look, I I would contend, Nick, that you know there is a hidden part of that too. That let me just go ahead and throw it out there: that Nike and Champion, and that all of these companies also do, because they're still using what I would call cheap labor to the point of slave labor, because these products are not mm-hmm. made here they're yeah. made in countries where you know you're paying five dollars a day to an employee or ten dollars a day or twenty dollars mm-hmm. a day you mm-hmm. know to an employee and then you're going to import that product back into the united states and you're selling a pair of air jordans for what 140 dollars oh heavens no 240 260 280 well that just goes to yeah. show you the last time i bought a pair of shoes <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
which again brings us to the other topic we should be looking at. That's the 4th of July. There you go. We have <laughs> something in this country, something good, a lot of bad, a lot of good. We've got a balance. There is a, a feeling abroad that you know, we've given up a lot of personal freedom. And that's another thing that ties in with the social with this Supreme Court is where does the Internet stream of information out there cut into our freedoms? And do we use that as a, a maybe a jumping off point for a discussion of the Fourth of July? Well, I'm going to let me throw in my final word on this. And then, you know, I'm uh... I'm just I'm waiting with bated breath to hear what the, what the rest of you think about this. But let me just because I've been holding these connections and as an academic, let me tie it all together. All of my little uh, missives and stuff today. The 4th of July for me is uh, normally I have a recitation of things that go through my mind. Slavery, its impact on my family and how the 4th of July for me in my family and my family history didn't start until 1865 if that okay and even though it was black folks and other people of color who contributed to that revolution and as i've said on this program before one of the things that we miss in terms of history is that the revolutionary army of the united states under george washington was an integrated army there were blacks and there were all types of people of color, including a whole wide variety of Europeans, Irish, Italians, and others who fought in that war. The second piece that comes to me in terms of the 4th of July is how this country has treated me and my family and my ancestors in ways that I can't always be proud of the government, but I can always be proud of my country. When I look at, for example, under the book, uh, the, the color of law, and I look at something, again, we talked about in terms of property rights, property rights for people of color, in particular, black folks in this country have always been marginalized. And in some instances, those property rights have been restored. Restricted, restricting me to a particular community, restricting me to a particular housing project, respecting me in terms of home in ownership. But yet at the same time, the 4th of July still stands as a beacon of hope in terms of what it is. And I always think about this on the 4th of July, what it is that we should be aspiring to when communities come together, when communities are embracing one another. And I look back with pride, my good friend and partner, Mike Kelly, for 10 years ran the 4th of July uh, festival in Franklin. And it was one of the greatest experiences, not only of uh, of my me and my family, but also something we take pride in. So the Fourth of July for me has always been a yin, a yin and a yang. Okay, looking at those things that uh, are troubling in the history of this country, but also looking at the hope and promise. So again, this it, it embodies what we do in this program because I think there's a lot of hope, and I'm looking forward to the fourth and celebrating again here in Franklin. You could uh, you could mention that I was the treasurer at that time. Oh, but I, oh, but, but but also you're, yes, you're right, but, Frank. Yeah, did, Frank. Didn't someone just mention that? Phone. Didn't yeah. someone just bring that up? Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, but, uh, Thank you, Frank. Michael, we did a program a, a little while ago on the More Perfect Union that you and Ken Elmore were participating in. And I want to kind of 
paraphrase one of the things that you said is that you said there's a lot more that needs to be done in relationship to African-American future. I am a real old guy. I remember, you know, back growing up in conditions. I think you need a program to talk about specifically. Everyone says there's a lot more that needs to be done. I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that what needs to be done is African Americans fade from the news, news uh, grabbing all the news spotlight, and Latin Americans, people that have crossed the border, we hear nothing about them. We hear absolutely nothing what's happening, and they need to begin. They're a larger ethnic majority than African Americans. They need to begin to be grabbing much more of the news media spotlight so we can understand what is happening to that large segment of the population. Well, I do want to come in just just briefly here. Just in the Supreme Court says colleges and universities can no longer take race into consideration as an express factor in admissions, a landmark decision, uh, of course, that. So we do have that decision. The uh, no uh, overturns longstanding president. Mm -hmm. Yep. Six to three decision. Six Not a three. surprise. I think we were expecting this to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this, I think, is a whole show we could devote to this topic. Yeah. And, uh, in particular, in, in what uh, and in regard to uh, Frank's point, because this has benefited black and Latino students in higher education for several years. So we've got both of them coming up. So well, that, it's disappointing uh, and but not unexpected. Mm -hmm. uh, this court is reversing. And again, let's also be clear that this is a reversal of precedent. Since the Debaki case uh, back in the 70s, mm -hmm. uh, that has not been the law of the land. Uh, and now this court is saying, uh, let's just throw that out. And to some degree, I think this is also equivalent to Dred Scott. Mm -hmm. This goes back to, well, you folks... Uh, in terms of taking color into consideration or ethnicity into consideration or the university, your job of trying to diversify your populations, forget it. Find some other way to do that if you can. Well, you know what? We have the 4th of July coming up. We talk repeatedly on this program about what it takes to make a poor, per, more perfect union. Uh, we see a Supreme Court decision. I haven't read it, so I can't pass full judgment on it, but uh, it's uh, something that uh, I believe is going to take us away from that uh, more perfect union. But uh, that's a topic for another show. But I do want to wish everyone uh, a happy Fourth of July. Yes, thank I you. thoroughly enjoy uh, our conversation we had today, but uh, Frank, you had alluded to the fact that there's more work to do. Well, that breaking news just showed you some mm -hmm. of the uh, more work that uh, mm -hmm. we have to do, and uh, we'll grapple with it over the next couple of weeks. So we will. I'd like to uh, sort of zoom back a little bit here on the Fourth of July and and point out, you know, what we're celebrating and some of its origins, and the fact that crafting the Constitution was no easy task. Uh, in fact, uh, there were some people who were seriously opposed to the Constitution upon its passing, James Madison being among them. He and Edmund Randolph, who were both responsible for the Virginia plan, which weaves its way through the Constitution fairly heavily, uh, really felt that it was so deeply flawed that they were struggling to support it. And that gets us to Ben Franklin. 
In his wisdom, as the elder statesman of those proceedings, he wrote the following. I agree to this Constitution with all its faults, if they are such, because I think a general government necessary for us, and there is no form of government but what may be a blessing to the people if well administered. I doubt, too, whether any ob I doubt, too, whether any other convention we can obtain may be able to make a better Constitution. For when you assemble a number of men who have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, all their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. From such an assembly can a perfect production be expected? It therefore astonishes me to find this system approaching so near to perfection as it does. And I think it will astonish our enemies who are waiting with confidence to hear that, who are waiting with confidence to hear that our councils are confounded, those of the builders of Babel. Thus, I consent to this constitution because I expect no better and because I am not sure that is not and because I am not sure that is not the best. The opinions I have had of its errors, I sacrifice to the public good. And he called on other delegates with objections to the constitution to doubt a little of his infallibility. <laughs> well, I think we all have to doubt our infallibility. And, and with that, he managed to push it over the line. Well, I think we can end on that note. Everyone seems to be smiling for some reason, but we'll find out later. That'll be a subject of another show also. Because... Will that be our What Were You Thinking episode? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, on this one, another more perfect union hour has flown by. And we do have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you'd like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can always email us at info at franklin.tv. That is I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. If you disagree, somebody out there has to disagree. And that's all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. So for our guests and regulars, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeffrey Roy, higher education consultant and Boston Red Sox fan, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, <laughs> and the founder of our feast, Frank Falvey. And as always, the giggling station manager, Peter J. I am Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio. Mm -hmm.